to four beautiful and amazing human beings. We have three teenagers and one young adult. And over the years, we've been entertained with all of their dreams and aspirations of what they wanted to do when they grow up. And we've entertained and heard ideas like uh, mechanic, firefighter, we've heard herpetologist, study of reptiles and amphibians. We have heard, um, let's see, dental hygienist, we've heard nurse, we've heard professional gamer, <laughs> YouTuber, internet influencer. Are those actually really jobs, like careers? We've also heard nurse. We've also lately heard owner of the Niswa Dairy Queen. <laughs> We've learned a couple of things along the way as our kids have gotten older. One of the things is, if you have a junior or know a junior, and you ask them what are they gonna do after school, it totally freaks them out. Like, it's too soon, don't make me think about that, let me just be a kid. If you know or have a senior in high school and you ask them, what are you doing after school, it totally stresses them out. It's coming too soon, give them a little bit more time, but it's coming. If you have a freshman in college, you probably want to check in with them maybe every other month just to see what the plan is at that point because it might change. The one thing that we never heard any of our kids say, when I grow up, I want to be in middle management. <laughs> Not one. And we've got a lot of them. I found myself there after teaching for six years. I got restless and I decided to go back to school and I earned a master's degree in leadership. And once I earned that master's degree in leadership, I decided that I was probably better suited to lead a school than the people I worked for. <laughs> I know, kind of arrogant. So I went on and then I earned, my, I earned myself a principal and superintendent's license. And where do you suppose that landed me? Right, Niswa, right in middle management, about as far away from my dream of being a stay-at-home mom as I possibly could have gotten. I found myself managing the expectations of student achievement laid out by the state. I was also managing the expectations and the parameters of a school board budget. I was managing the dreams of, of parents and the shenanigans of middle schoolers Man, middle managers have the interesting job of managing and maintaining and, and um, collaborating with multiple groups of people. Last week, John introduced us this concept of a middle manager in, this, in the high priest. It's the epitome of a middle manager, actually. This role today that we're going to talk about is a specific kind of high priest. It's a special high priest, an appointed high priest, a different kind of high priest, Jesus. But first, we're going to take a look and closely look at the traditional role of high priest in ancient Israel. So turn in your Bibles with me, page 1003. This is just water. You know what coffee does to people up here, right? Just water. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest is not something that somebody gets to apply for and choose for themselves. It's not how that works. The high priest is appointed by God himself. The position of high priest in Israel came only from a divine appointment. It wasn't a democratic process where somebody got to apply. It wasn't a political position or elected office where people got to vote and choose who their leader was going to be. This appointment was more like appointing the executor to your will or your estate. The priests came from among the people. They had solidarity with people because they were one of them. Like middle managers mediating between two parties, the high priest represents the people in the matters of God. They represented the authority of the Mosaic law, and they mediated, making offerings of gift and sacrifice for the atonement of sins. Remembering the high priest is a human from among the people, he's one of them, they too were obligated to offer sacrifices for their own sins. The fact that the high priest is from among the people and also needed atonement for, them, for their sins gave the priest the authority to deal with sin seriously, but deal with the sinner patiently. This encouraged openness between the people and the high priest. Nobody really wants to confess to wrongdoing to somebody that they are scared of or they know is going to be angry. A middle school student was never going to confess to me that they shoved an entire roll of toilet paper down the toilet. And I get the middle school and the mischievous mind of a middle schooler. I was one. I didn't do the mischievous things, but I hung out with lots of kids that did. Right. And so here's how this went. Buddy, like, you made a huge mess. There is water all over the floor, and the custodian is working really hard to get that out. It wasn't me. But I saw you walk out of the bathroom on the camera right before the toilet flooded. What were you thinking, buddy? I wasn't thinking. Right, of course you weren't thinking. You're a middle schooler. So here's what we're going to do. You are going to take all of the toilet paper out of the toilet. You're going to help the custodian mop up that big water mess. And when you're done with that, you're going to come back to my office, and you're going to call mom or dad, and you're going to let them know about the extra fun activities that you participated in today. Not exactly what he wanted to do that day, and he might be in the audience, but I don't really see him. <laughs> maybe, seven, maybe second service. The high priest could empathize with the sinner, and he was able to facilitate their atonement. We want leaders that know what it's like to be one of us. We want somebody that has walked in our shoes to lead and represent us. It can be hard to follow a leader without experience or somebody that doesn't know what it's like to do what we need to do. Like in my first administrative job, <laughs> I was completely in charge of an entire small district. It was a million dollar budget. I had 10 years of teaching under my belt. 
some advanced education and a license. And apparently, that was enough to qualify me because they took a huge risk on me because I was in way over my head. I was the food service director. I had never worked in a school kitchen before. I was the transportation coordinator. I rode a bus as a kid, but I never drove a bus. I had never planned bus routes, and I certainly never purchased or leased school school buses. I was also the human resources, and at times the school nurse. I look back, and I wonder, how on earth did these people ever have any confidence in me as their leader? With the exception of being a teacher, I had never walked in the shoes of my bus drivers, my cooks, or my business manager. It's the weakness and the propensity to sin that linked the high priest to the people. Apart from divine appointment and authority, the need for atonement is what they had in common, and it brought a sense of humility to the high priest in the eyes of the people. The text goes on to illustrate the significance of Jesus being designated and appointed as high priest, verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Here, our author references Old Testament Psalms, to be exact, to make the point that, like Aaron, who was the brother of Moses and the first appointed high priest at Mount Sinai, Jesus did not choose this position. God, his Father, appointed him. The writer wants the audience to understand why they should respond to Jesus. Verse 5 is a reference to Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The author is saying, this was foretold. This is the son of God. God brought him for this purpose. Verse 6 is a reference to Psalm 110. You are a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, here's a clue for the reader to understand who Jesus is. He will reign forever. Forever is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. He is a high priest of a different kind, a future king that will be given a greater honor, greater power, and greater authority than any human king before him. The reference to Melchizedek here points to the different kind of priesthood that Jesus is. And we'll see this psalm again, and we will hear the reference of Melchizedek again in chapter 7. Jesus' appointment was not made simply because he was the son of God. This isn't a case of a son or daughter inheriting the family business, and it wasn't a case of a powerful executive or politician appointing friends and family to, to spots of influential power. What is most notable about the path of Jesus' appointment was that it was one of suffering, obedience, and endurance in addition to him being the Son of God. Verses 7 and 8. In the day of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears 
to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In the days of his flesh, Jesus was fully human, fully physical human. He had a human physical body like we had, and it did all of the weird and amazing things that our body does. Jesus was physically fully human. It's important to understand the significance. Up to this point, people didn't have direct access to God, and they always had the representative, the high priest. But Jesus was a different kind of high priest. He was fully human, and he was fully divine. He lived among the people, and he experienced all of what it meant to be human. He was tempted, he suffered, he experienced the pain of the human condition alongside all of the people. He understood what it meant to be human, not only because he himself was physically human, but because he lived with people and he did life with them. He sat with a mother who lost her child. He fed the hungry and he ate with the poor. He touched the unclean and he cleansed them. He sat with the sick and healed them. He brought sight to the blind. He comforted the weak and weary. He washed the feet of his disciples. He interacted with those that nobody else wanted to associate with. And he loved the people. He loved all of the people, and he loved them first. Jesus understood the condition of humanity better than anybody else. I like to watch Undercover Boss. Anybody else? Mm -hmm. So Undercover Boss, if you haven't seen it before, it's this show where an executive, a CEO, owner, president of a corporation gets all in disguise, like professionally made up. Makeup, wig, clothes, the whole nine yards. Like not even their family would recognize them. They go into the entry level of their organization and they work there for a week or two with the people that are working for them. And more often than not, the owner is um, overcome by gratitude and emotion with what these people that work for them endure and give up in order to work for them. And what gets me, I'm not really a crier, but at the end, sometimes I do, the owner of this company is so overcome and recognizes that he needs to completely change the way he does business for the betterment of the corporation, but more importantly, he wants to change things for the benefit of the people who work for him. Jesus came in the flesh in order to fully understand and experience the human condition. Even though he is the Son of God, he experienced temptation and suffering, and yet he remained sinless. Matthew 4 speaks of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. Think about this. He actually experienced and felt the physical and emotional pull of temptation. This is an example of how Jesus and why Jesus is able to fully understand the battles that many of us face. In response to the human condition, Jesus' high priest offered prayer and supplication on behalf of himself and others. The text in verse 7 describes loud cries and tears 
This is supplication. It's a posture of pleading and begging. He fully understands what it means to suffer and struggle. Here the writer gives another reference to Jesus' identity. Jesus prayed to God the Father, the one he knew who could save him from his death, and he was heard. We know that God heard Jesus because after Jesus was crucified, God gave him eternal life, seated him at his right hand because of his reverence. Jesus' obedience came from his faith and trust in God in the midst of his temptation and suffering. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is not a case of good parenting or God teaching Jesus to be obedient. Obedience is often the goal of parenting, though, right? We want our kids to make choices for themselves, and we want them to equate with the outcome of their choices with what they are experiencing in life. This is how we know that when they leave our house, they're going to make, be able to make decisions on their own, right? We all have choices to make. I remind myself, and I say this to my kids and friends, whenever we complain about the way things are. We have a teen at our house who shall remain nameless, but this summer she committed herself to four volleyball, oh, I just gave it away, didn't I? Sorry, hon. Four volleyball camps, four volleyball tournaments, could have been six, um, four, or Monday night volleyball league, and she also committed to working four days a week. I don't know what it is about fours, but a couple weeks ago she came to us and she's like, ah, oh, summer's almost over. I have hardly had any time to do anything fun or enjoy it. I don't even know what to say to that, <laughs> except that we all have choices to make with how we spend our time. Parenting is not what is happening here. There is no suggestion that Jesus ever disobeyed. Jesus did not learn to obey because of previous disobedience and learning from his mistakes. Jesus' obedience was the result of a life he experienced day by day and the faith and trust that he had in God his Father. He trusted God completely with his life. In this way, he was made perfect. The text concludes in verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was fully human. He was tempted like we are. He suffered like we do. When he suffered, he leaned into it, learning to trust God and do his will. He didn't aim to seek comfort for himself to avoid the pain or the suffering that he was experiencing. He didn't busy himself with friends or hobbies or activities to avoid what he was experiencing. We do that sometimes, don't we? I do that. I busy myself in an effort to avoid pain and discomfort, and I seek comfort in something that will distract me. It's like fight or flight. We oftentimes flee. But Jesus, he fought to trust God with his entire life. I had a conversation with a friend on my deck last week, 
And we talked about how oftentimes when we're in a season or a period or a circumstance where we're suffering or experiencing pain or emotional pain, we bring all of our people in. We gather people around us, not in an effort to make us help us solve problems, but we bring them in so that they will tell us all of the things that we want to hear that will affirm our feelings and our response to whatever is going on. We want these people to tell us what we want to hear so that we can feel better. Instead of going to God in an effort to seek his wisdom, his comfort, and his will, we pull all of our people in so that they are the ones that can comfort us and make us feel okay. Please don't hear me wrong. It is really important that we share in our suffering and our temptation. We need each other, and it is part of being in community. But what gut response do we have in hard times and seasons of suffering? Do we run to God first, or do we rally all our people, make ourselves busy, and do all of the things to distract ourselves from the pain? Jesus was steadfast in his suffering. His source of strength was his faith in God. The perfection of Jesus in this verse is tied to his suffering, death, and obedience. Jesus wasn't an heir born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father simply because of his bloodline. God needed Jesus to fully understand the human condition so that he could understand what necessitated himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice. Jesus understood his role as high priest and the ultimate sacrifice he would have to make as the source of eternal salvation for all who will obey him. I think I would have been a better leader in that school if I had worked in a school kitchen, if I had driven a bus route although I'm not sure that my feet would have touched the pedals, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I'm fairly certain I would have been a more compassionate leader if I had worked a night shift, custodial shift, or plowed the parking lot at 3 a.m. after a snowstorm. Jesus was prepared for the position of high priest. He is one of us. He is a proven leader, worthy of our complete faith and devotion. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who will obey him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the gift of Jesus. I can't imagine a more prepared leader one who has walked in our shoes, experienced our temptation and suffering. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see the gift, the offer that Jesus is to each and every one of us. And friends, in the quietness of this moment, perhaps you have not decided to rely on the gift of Jesus, and perhaps you have. 
but maybe you have taken over the reins and you have forgotten to let Jesus be the best kind of leader, the best offer we could actually have. So in the quietness of this moment, I offer you time to do business with God.